Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand up high where Ron can see it, and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Get about five or six, Ron. Four will do, I guess. First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 this morning. Okay, you guys must be all there because it's quiet in here, so you turn there quick. Starting in verse 3, the Apostle John writes this. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk, just as He walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. And again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The title of my study this morning is, Are You a Christian? Prove it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, to be in your word. Lord, we're excited because we know that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. Lord, that the God of the universe who created us, who formed us, you now want to speak to us. And so, Lord, we just pray for attentive ears to hear all that you have for us this morning. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, they're not born again, they, they don't know what it means to have their sin forgiven, Lord, would you especially touch their heart today that they would see their need for you and they would turn from their sin and they would turn to you this morning. So we thank you for this time together, Lord. We praise you for it. And it's in your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. We're going to start about a, a dad who was teaching his son what a Christian should be like. When the lesson was over, the dad got a shock that he would not soon forget when the little boy turned to him and asked him, Dad, have I ever met one of these Christians? Ooh. If you were to ask ten different people what a Christian is, you'd probably get ten different answers. I mean, if you had a news crew come up to an average church in, in America today and they would say, live from Channel 7 News, from your local church, we're asking people, you know, are you a Christian and how do you know it? I think you'd be amazed at some of the answers. You'd probably hear one person say, uh, of course I'm a Christian. I was raised in America. I've been going to church all my life. I've been raised in Sunday school. Maybe another person might react by saying, what do you mean am I a Christian? I'm not a bad person. I, I've got nothing against God. Another person might say, of course I'm a Christian. Can't you see the cross I have on my neck? 
I have a, a fish on my car and my Jesus loves you bumper sticker. I heard of a national poll that was done that asked Americans, what is a Christian? And they found that 85% of Americans claim to be Christians, but only one out of five said Christianity has to do with the acceptance of or a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 22% of the people when asked, what is a Christian, said, I don't know. 21 said it's to live differently than others. 14% it said it's to believe in God. 11% said being a Christian means to go to church and be a religious person. 10% said it means to be a good person. So I thought, well, just for kicks, what does Webster's Dictionary, how does, do they define a Christian? What does Webster's have to say? So I looked it up. They give you three definitions. Number one, a Christian is one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Number two, a Christian is a member of one of the churches of Christ that separated from the disciples of Christ in 1906. And number three, a Christian is the hero in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress book. I know maybe you've gone back and forth with people sharing your faith and you've shared and, 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 and shared till they got to the point where they said, well, how do you know you're right? How do you know that you're a Christian? Let me say that's something the early church was facing as well. How do you know that you're a Christian? What proof is there that you belong to him? Or as one person puts it, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I don't mean by how many Bibles you own, but is there hard evidence that if your family members or your, your neighbors or your co-workers were interviewed and asked the question, in your opinion, uh, is you or me you know, a real Christian, what would they say? We may, may not be happy with their response. We hear John wants us to know how to spot a real Christian. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things, three proofs that you are a Christian, that you belong to Christ. It'll be evident in three ways. Number one, in your attitude. Number two, in your actions. And number three, in your affection. Number one, your attitude. Now remember that John was writing this to come against the, the false teaching of the Gnostics, the Gnostic heresy. Basically, these were the guys that thought they were in the know. They were in the, into the deeper things uh, of life. They were the deeper life club, and they had this knowledge. The word Gnostic actually means to know. They were basic, basically a heretical group that denied the deity of Jesus Christ, but thought they knew more about God than anyone else did. Kind of looked down on people and judged people. So these verses obviously are aimed at the Gnostics who profess to have a superior knowledge of God, but showed little interest in keeping the commandments of the Lord. They claimed to know God, but there was no proof of it by how they lived and what they believed. Now, also at this time, you need to know that the ancient Greeks uh, believed that you could know God in a couple of different ways. Number one, they said you could know God through your mind. And the philosophers like Plato, who came a couple of hundred years before John the Apostle, believed that through philosophical intellect, you could come into contact to knowing God. On the other class, the other group of Greeks who said you know God through your emotions. You can know God through your feelings. So they would teach the congregations in these pagan Greek temples to, to work themselves into this excited frenzy, just go berserk when they worship so that they would know God through these tingly, warm, excited feelings. And I think that we see the same people today, the same three categories. Like the Gnostics, they may claim to know God, but their theology and their doctrine proves otherwise. 
Or, like the, the, the Greeks, the ones that may claim to know God because they've got their masters in religious studies and, and theology, and in their minds they believe that the smarter they are, the more they know God. And then number three, you have those who claim to know God, and they tend to, to church where, where, where it's all about getting worked up into a frenzy and, and going berserk and worship and all about how they feel, but not a true relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why John begins the way he does in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now I believe that John is purposely using a play on words here because the Gnostics, they thought that they were in the know. But John says, we know that we know him. So as John has, says, is as evidence that I know him, that my life has been converted, that I've been saved, that I've been born again, he says, I will keep his commandments. That word for keep you might want to underline in your Bibles is the Greek word tereho, which literally means to guard or to stand watch over. Like a person standing guard or watch over a precious treasure. He would carefully guard it. He would carefully watch over it because it's precious to him. Now the word ten, uh, commandments here, rather the term commandments, don't get confused with the ten commandments. Rather it's a term for the, the word of God or, or, or the, uh, all of the word of God. So the idea here is that you can know that you're a Christian because the commandments, the word, the will of God is something that is precious to you. It's to be guarded and watched over carefully by the person who says that he or she is a Christian. See, being a Christian isn't following a bunch of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. Being a Christian begins with an attitude adjustment. An attitude and a desire to obey and a holy fear that you would disobey God. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.9. He says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. That's my aim, Paul says. That's my desire, that whatever I do, I want to make sure that my life is pleasing to Him. That's a mark of a Christian. See, it's more than keeping a list. It's more than keeping the legalistic adherence. It begins with a desire. It begins with the condition of the heart. Now this... Attitude is the opposite of the pride and the high-mindedness of the Gnostics. It's kind of like this. If you ever come across two people that are in love, maybe you're at a restaurant, you know, and, and they're in love and they're just looking in each other's eyes. And, you know, when two people are in love, they, they just want to make sure what they say and what they do pleases the other person. So you're in that restaurant and, and you're sitting next to them, you know, you, you can see their table and you can just hear their conversation and, the, and the, you know, the, 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 the boy says, oh, you take the last chip, you know. Uh, and she says, oh, I couldn't take the last chip. No, you take, no, please, I insist, you take the last chip. No, you take the last chip. And you want to leave, lean over and say, would you just take the stupid dumb chip, you know, and eat it yourself, all right? But here's my point. They're in love. You know, they, they just want to please each other. You know, the guy doesn't get off work on a Friday night and go, oh, what a drag, it's Friday. I guess I've got to have to take her out on a date. I'm guessing I guess I'm going to have to be with her. I'm going to have to comb my hair and get dressed up. What a bummer. It doesn't do that. Man, he can't wait, can't wait to be with her. He's thinking about how to please her. It's an attitude. It's not a, I've got to do this, or I've got to do that, or else this, or else that. I get to do this and this. So... Test number one to prove you're truly a Christian is what is your attitude like? When you read God's Word and hear truth spoken to you through the Word of God, what is your attitude? Is it one that goes, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't apply to me. Or is it one that says, yes, Lord, 
Thank you for speaking to my heart. I want that molded into my very being, into my, my character. Lord, I want to please you. See, attitudes are much more important than aptitudes. It's not so much how good of a servant you are for the Lord or what great things you can accomplish for the Lord, but what is your attitude towards God? Do you desire to do His will? Do you desire to please Him? See, I think that that actually is one of the greatest differences between a Christian and a non-Christian. You know, non-Christians, they don't get up in the morning and say, oh, I can't wait to read the Word of God. I've never met an unbeliever who said, I just want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an appetite that comes from a relationship with God and it actually proves that that person has that relationship with God. I mean, think about it. Before you were a Christian, when you got up in the morning, there was no appetite for the Word of God. There was no appetite for the things of God. There was only an appetite for breakfast, right? You know, got to have my coffee. But once you've given your life to Christ, then you have the hunger for the things of God, the desire to start your day in God's Word, and then breakfast, and then your coffee. It's a different attitude. And every now and then, I'll, I'll have someone come up to me, and they're kind of frustrated, but they'll say, man, I, I just want to serve God, and I just want to do something for the Lord. I've got so many ideas, but the doors haven't opened yet, and what's wrong with me? I want to serve, but there's no area for me to serve. I hear that, and you know what? I, I smile on the inside, because I know that that person is on the right track. He couldn't have that desire in him unless God put that on his heart. You see, the in-working always precedes the out-working. But that's just the beginning. See, to keep God's commandments is more than just good intentions. It means compliance, which is the second proof. If you're proving you're a Christian, it's the second one to prove it is. Number one, it's the right attitude to please God. Number two, second point, it's your action. Your walk has got to match your talk. Look at verse 4. John writes, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So remember, John, 90, maybe 100 years old, he doesn't really care anymore what people think about him. You know, not that he ever did, but, but you know, he, he just lays it on the line here. He says, okay, you say you love Jesus, but if your walk doesn't match your talk, you know what, you're a liar. You're like, you're a liar. You know, maybe it's like, like that. I don't, I don't know. But he says this in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever keeps his word, love of God is perfected in him. By, we know we're in him. So what proof do you have that you're a Christian? What evidence is there in a person's life that they have been born again, that they know him, that they have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It will be evident in their actions. They will have a walk of obedience. See, when someone says with their mouth that I know him, but with their life that they're continuing to live in disobedience, then what can you conclude? You can conclude that they don't really know him. But again, the proof is going to be in your actions. Look at verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Your desire to serve should be followed by your service itself. Our theology, what we believe in, should be no different than our practice. Let me give you an example. My 17-year-old son, can't believe he's 17, Matthews, homeschool class 1A football team, just beat Central High School class 5A team. Go Lighthouse Chargers, way to go. Big, big write-up in the newspaper, okay? Now, Matthew isn't a football player because he's read a lot of books about how to play football. No, he's a football player because he gets out and he plays football. My point is this. The attitude must be followed up by the action. 
And I wanted to brag about Matthew's football team. But, <laughs> but my main point is this. If we have a, a Christ-like attitude, then we should have Christ-like actions. Or as John puts it in verse 6, he ought to walk just as he walked. Uh, you know, we ought to walk as Jesus walked. The walk of the saint ought to model the walk of the Savior. Now, that doesn't mean that since Jesus walked on water, that we can walk on water as well. No. Uh, rather, the walk of Jesus is how Jesus walked in daily compliance, in daily obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus, we need to walk as Jesus walked. The point is, obedience proves you have that relationship with Jesus. You know, Jesus put it this way in Matthew seven sixteen: You will know them by their fruits. In other words, you can look at a person, his attitude towards the Word of God, his attitude towards the will of God, and his actions, if he's living out the Christian life or not. If he's living the life the way Christian people should live their lives. Now, obedience proves you have a relationship, but it does not produce the relationship. It demonstrates it. Let me say that again. Obedience proves that you have a relationship, but it doesn't produce a relationship. It only demonstrates it. There's a difference. And I grew up, you know, being taught if I do this, this, and this, and I'll be a Christian. But, but God said, no, I'll take you just as you are. I'll save you just as you are. And because you are a Christian now, and because He works those changes in you now, those desires in you, there's going to be now, the work He's going to do in you, and now you need to be obedient towards that. See, it proves, uh, it doesn't produce a Christian, it just proves you are indeed a Christian. Now here's the thing. Enthusiasm getting all hyped up, you know, is a lot easier than obedience. Man, to, 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 it's easy to get excited. Oh, hey, man, all right, yay, all right, hallelujah, and have this huge emotional experience. But it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. You see, John says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, I love how one Christian leader put it. Loving God is not one big emotional goosebump. Loving God is a commitment to selfless obedience. Now remember the background here. The Greeks said you can know God through philosophical knowledge. The other Greeks said you can know God through working into an emotional frenzy and warm, fuzzy, feely worship. The Gnostics said you must attain to spiritual heights through special rituals and rites and our, and, and our way of knowledge. And John says here, all you claim to know God, you have, haven't a clue. Because as I look at your life, you not only have this attitude that excludes other people, you don't have an attitude that's compliant to, to his word, and your words certainly are not followed up by your actions. In fact, the other thing is, is happening, you're proving that you don't know the Lord. See, God to the Apostle John was not a set of rules or warm, fuzzy feelings. He was a holy God meant to be obeyed. In fact, Jesus put it this way, and, and John was there when he said this in John fifteen fourteen. Jesus said, you are my friends, but he added, if you do whatever I command you. Quite simply, you demonstrate your friendship to Jesus, your relationship with Jesus, when you obey Him. See, if you don't obey Him, you really have no right yourself to, to say that you're His friend, because true friends of Jesus will obey Jesus. For example, you may have a person that say they, they're your close friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah we're, we're friends, we're close friends. But they're always talking behind your back, always cutting you down and telling lies about you. Well, what kind of friend really are they? So you confront them. Say, excuse me, um, are you really my friend? Oh, yeah, I'm your friend. Well, if you're my friend, why do you walk around and talk about me? I mean, someone just told me that you said this and that about me. And, and, and something. is it true? Uh, yeah, it's true. I did say that. Uh, sorry. 
but I really love you, man. Uh, can you forgive me? Yeah, all right, I forgive you. Then they show up the next day and, 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 and they give you this really nice gift. Oh, I, I bought this for you uh, just to show you that I really want to be your friend. Okay, thanks, you know, and you forgive them. Next day you find out they're talking about you all over again. And they're telling lies about you all over again. And so you confront them. What's going on? I don't know what came over me. Man, I just, I just love you so much. Then they give you another gift. You know, and, and, and then it's, this time it's even more expensive than the last one. You forgive them again. It happens again after a while. You say, listen, I don't want your gifts. I want your honest friendship. I want your loyalty. My point is that a lot of us are like that with God. We say, oh yeah, I'm a friend of God. Jesus Christ is my best friend. Really? Then obey Him. But a lot, a lot of us will not obey Him. We'll break His commandments over and over again with intent. And then periodically we'll say to God, well, I'm sorry, I know I've done this horrible thing. And listen, I'll make up for it. I mean, I, I'm going to go to another church service this week. I'll, I'll go twice this week. I'll sing a little louder in worship. I'm, I'm going to give a large financial gift to the church. You know what God would say to that? Keep your gift. Don't want it. Don't want you to sing louder. I just want you to obey me. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Saul who rejected the Lord because of his constant wickedness, but he was instructed by the Lord to go into battle against his enemies and destroy them completely along with their livestock. But as he was defeating the enemy on the battlefield, he saw these this, this wonderful sheep, and they looked healthy and strong, and, and the cattle there, so he decided to keep them for himself. So he gave the order, him to take these back to my home. So they did that. Well, there Saul was out in his camp, then the prophet Samuel shows up. Strolling along, and Saul you know, goes out to greet him. Samuel, good to see you. How are you? Bless you in the name of the Lord. Samuel says, I have a question for you, Saul. Yeah? What well, did you do all that the, that the Lord commanded you to do? Oh, yes, I did everything. I destroyed the enemies of the Lord. I did just as you said. Samuel says, well, then why is it that I hear the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle in the background? What sheep? Uh, you, you're missing the body. It's me. Yeah, i got to get something in my throat. no. Actually, Saul says this. He says, hey, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I save those for the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice them to the Lord God. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I was going to mention that to you next week. Then I love the statement of Samuel to, to Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, he says this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of lambs. He was saying, first and foremost, God wants your obedience. Then your worship. Then your praise. Then your giving. Then your service. All of those other things are fine in their place, but obedience must come first and foremost. Let me take it a step further. Maybe a husband might be unfaithful to his wife. She finds out, honey, I'm sorry, I really love you more than anyone else. And he goes out and he buys her a new dress. But then he's unfaithful a week later. Well, he goes out and then buys her a new car and says he's sorry. He does it again, buys her a new house. After a while, she's going to say, listen, I don't want all of this stuff. I want your faithfulness more than everything else. If you want to give me all that other stuff, I'll take all that other stuff. But, 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 but you're missing the point. Those things cannot take the place of what really matters. If you love me, obey me. That's the mark. That's the proof of a real Christian. John makes it clear. Obedience is the mark of those that know him. And if you're abiding in Christ, then the fruit of that will be walking as Jesus walked. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed are if you do them. I heard this quote recently, doers climb the oak tree, dreamers sit on the acorns. That was James' whole point. You know, when James wrote that convicting, uh, hard-hitting epistle called the book of James, 
when he said faith without works is what? It's dead. It's dead. In that same epistle, he wrote this in James 1, 22-24. In the New Living Translation, he says, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. Now, that can be kind of embarrassing. I mean, we all have mirrors in our house. They're not there for just to hang on the wall to look nice. They're, to see, they're, they're there so we can look at ourselves. But if by, for some reason, you know, you look in there and your brain just shuts down and you forget what you look at and you walk, look like and you walk out the door and part of your hair is going this way and part of your hair is going that way and your shirt's on backwards and it's not buttoned up and, you, you know, you still got the sleepies in your eyes and, and you, you know, stains. It's horrible. But you think you're looking fine. Oh, I'm doing pretty good. But in reality, you're a mess. James says you're deceiving yourself. See, it's not enough to see you for what you are. You need to make those changes that God wants to do in your life. That's why John says what he says. Look at verse 7. Brethren, I write, to you, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. You heard the word. You know what the word says. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Something you've heard. Turn with me in your Bibles over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6 for a moment. 6 verse 46. And look at the words of Jesus and how he put put this. Luke 6.46. Keep your place because we're going to be right back to 1 John. That's the best sound that pastors love to hear. Pages turning in their Bibles. Luke 6.46. Jesus is speaking. He says this, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, was like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Keep something in mind here about this section of Scripture. Jesus was not speaking to the pagans or the heathens. He was speaking to uh, people who had the right, uh, presumably the right doctrine that said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says here, there are two types that call me Lord, Lord. Each built a house, one a solid foundation, of hearing and doing. The other one, a weak one, the one that's hearing, nodding, taking notes, but not doing. Jesus eventually said, eventually that house will be ruined. Again, I know I'm driving this point home. It's not whether you, you nod, listen, or agree with His will. It's whether you do it. He who loves me keeps my commandments. It's great to have your two feet on the ground theologically, to have a good foundation of what you believe in doctrinally. It's even okay to have an excitement for the Lord, to have that emotional experience. But, but it's not until you move your feet that you have a walk. You see, we have to move our spiritual feet forward to have our walks with Christ. Billy Graham's father, he was a, a father-in-law actually, was a missionary doctor uh, in China. He saw a lot of what true Christianity and a lot of false Christianity. He wrote these words. We may shout from the housetops our faith and our orthodoxy, but unless we have those coupled with obedience to the teaching of God's word, there will come a time when we find ourselves rejected from his eternal presence. So are you a Christian? 
Well, it'll be proof in your attitude. It'll be proof in your actions. Your, your walk has got to match your talk. And our final point, number three, the proof of affection. Look at verses 8 through 11. John writes, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So are you a Christian? Prove it. Begins with the right attitude. The action to obey. Then number three, it's proved by our affection towards one another. Now, let me say this. I think that's the hardest one to do. I think it's the hardest one to do. Because when asked, do you love God? Do you love the Lord? Oh, yeah, we we love the Lord. Great. Why? Because God is so lovable. Do you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Well, that's a little bit tougher, I have to admit. uh, Because we're not always that lovable, are we? (laughs) One person said, the church is much like Noah's Ark. Were it not for the storm on the outside, we couldn't stand the stench on the inside. I mean, the proof of that, you look at churches, you know, that have been split and splintered over just dumb issues, little issues. I heard of a church that, that actually split because the committees couldn't decide on what type of flowers to have on the stage behind the pulpit. Jesus put it this way in John thirteen thirty four: A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, there's nothing new about the commandment to love others. What is new is the empowering of the Holy Spirit that God gives us to love the others the way Jesus loves us. As Jesus loves you through the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to love others. See, by saying this, Jesus took the relationship that people have with God to the highest peak, the relationship of love to have towards one another. Again, the Old Testament, it was a, a list of what you did for God was, was because of the law. You did because the law said so. The New Testament I love God, therefore I will obey God because I'm motivated by my love for God. Therefore, because I'm motivated by my love for God, I'm going to love God's kids. We will love each other. That's a whole different reason for doing things. I mean, think about this. Here in the United States, we have laws to protect children. Parents, you know, must abide by the law and care for their kids. So if you leave, leave your car, your, your child parked in, in, a hot, in your car on a hot sunny day, that's considered child abuse. Now, you can go to jail for that. Your kids are protected by law, so you better take care of them. But when you wake up in the morning, as parents, and the sunlight's streaming through, your, through the window, and, and you kind of lean over and nudge your husband, and you wake him up and say, well, you know, we better get up and care for little Johnny, because if we don't, the cops are going to come in here, and they're going to arrest us. We better, better feed him breakfast. We, you know, uh, I'm afraid. No, you don't do that because of that. You do it. Why? Because you love him. The motivation is entirely different. Well, so it is spiritually. We love God, and as a result, we love God's children, and therefore we are motivated by love. Now, again, it's only possible because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because God is love, and if you have been born of God, if you are a Christian, then the, the proof will, in your life will be that love you have for others. But then... John says something very sobering. Look at verse 11. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded 
his eyes. If you want proof that you're not a child of God, that you're not a Christian, then the blinding effect of hatred in someone's heart is the clearest indication that they are not a child of God. If you're not walking in love, then that's a pretty good indication that you don't have a relationship with the Lord. Because you cannot be right with God and wrong with others. And that's why if you're married, guys, you know, gals, you cannot be right with God and wrong with your spouse. You can't have a, a close relationship with God and hate your wife, or, you know, or your husband. You can't hate anybody. And if you're, if you're in that position, then you need to confess and ask God to have mercy on you. If there's anyone in your life that you have hatred for or have bitterness towards in your heart, you ought to pray, God, soften my heart and forgive me. Why? Because it leads to blinding darkness, John says. And you're walking in darkness. And you certainly aren't going to experience the joy that we read about in, in chapter 1, verse 4. And you certainly are sinning that we read about in chapter 1, verse 8. And you certainly need to confess your sin that we read about in chapter 1, verse 9. And God will be faithful and just to forgive your, your, your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. See, you may be harboring hatred for a parent or a friend. That's not a mark of a true believer. God wants to break you. He wants to free you from that, that and replace that hatred with love in your heart. And you may say, well, but they haven't come to me. They haven't asked forgiveness to, for me. Uh, they never confessed to me. Uh, I have a right. Listen, it doesn't matter. Your hatred is sin. Your hatred is wrong. People have this wrong idea. They think that, that I, I really can't have a right attitude with, with, with this other person until they come and they apologize to me. Why not? As far as God is concerned, it's between you and God. You need to get that attitude right between you and God. So you're not responsible for what they've done to you or for whether or not they've asked you for forgiveness from what they've done to you, but you're responsible for your attitude towards them. And it shouldn't be that of hate. Listen, God certainly has been merciful and kind and gracious and forgiving towards us. Paul would write that in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ God in Christ has forgave you. Listen, hatred, unforgiveness puts you in a prison and you need to cry out to God to be merciful, to help you to be uh, loving. Because John says it's impossible for you as a child of God to walk in the light and hate your brother. If you do hate another Christian, it means something radically is wrong with your faith. Now, don't get me wrong here. I mean, there, there are other believers you know, that, that maybe you're, 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 you know and, and they just have habits you dislike or personal mannerisms that, that you know, kind of get under your skin. That's not necessarily hatred, okay? You may not care for some of their expressions or may even have a, a, a personality that clashes with theirs, but that doesn't mean you hate them. I like what J. Vernon McGee tells the story when he was attending seminary. He said this, I rumored the fellow who had some of the meanest habits I've ever seen in a Christian. He would start singing at night after I went to bed and was asleep. He wouldn't sing all day long, but at 11 o'clock at night, he was ready to tune up. He had a lot, of, a lot of mean habits like that. So one day I told him, you know, you're the greatest proof to me that I am a child of God. He asked, what do you mean? I replied, you're the most nauseating, the most sickening Christian that I've ever met, but I do want you to know something. I love you. He says, he looked right at me and said, I want you to know that you are the most abominable Christian I have ever met. And I also want you to know you are the hardest person in the world to love, but I love you. See, again, it doesn't mean that there aren't some people whose manners and habits are going to bug you and get under your skin, you know. That's understandable. But to hate them, 
To hate them reveals that you are in darkness. Hatred of a fellow believer is evidence that a person is not in the light. Remember what Jesus said when he was approached by a man and asked him, well, what is the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus said this in, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, we can say I love God, but because I love God, God's people are to be loved by me. And one of the proofs that I'm a Christian is that affects another love I have for God's children for one another. I'd recently read that rabbis during this time of John and Jesus used to say this, there is joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated from the earth. That's what they believed. Jesus came along and said, you know, there is more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. The same rabbi used to say this, God created the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to kindle the fires of hell. Jesus came along and said, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, not just a few of us, but the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And He elevated that relationship with God and with others based upon love. Listen, if there's one place that love ought to be demonstrated, it's in God's church among God's people. This should be the place where large doses of it are passed around. Listen, if the world isn't going to see it among God's people, where else are they going to see it? So, are you a Christian? Then prove it. Proof number one, you have the right attitude. You live to please God. Proof number two, it's action. Your walk has got to match your talk, obedience. And number three, the proof of affection, our love one for another. I want to close with this, and we'll enter into a time of communion. In the early church, there was, uh, you know, there was a living, loving fellowship. A lot of love going on. Well, one of the early church fathers wrote about how a Roman spy came into the church to spy out what these Christians were like. And they were to write back the report to Rome, the Roman government, of what he saw. And as he wrote back his report, this is what he said. These Christians are a strange group of people. They all gather into one building and they worship somebody who's not even there and whom they expect to return at any moment. And he said, but my, how they love him and my, how they love each other. I like that. As we close, as we enter into communion, it's a time for Christians to gather together in unity, to gather together in love, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross. We will hold the bread in our hands, really, in our case, it's a loved cracker in our hands, and we'll hold up a cup of grape juice to symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus that was poured out upon the cross for us, making it possible for us to have our sins forgiven, to be born again. You see, the real proof of being a Christian is that your sin has been forgiven, that you've come to Jesus Christ in humility, in repentance for your sin, and you've turned away from it and turned to the one who paid the price for your sin, Jesus Christ. That is what we remember when we come to communion. And the only stipulation for receiving communion is that you were born again this morning, that Jesus is your Lord, that He is your Savior, that you truly are a Christian. And if you're not a believer here this morning, as we pass out these elements, we're going to pass out the bread, we're going to hold on to it, then we're going to partake together, we're going to pass out the juice, hold on to it, and partake of it together. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I would say just let the tray pass by you, give it to the person next to you. The Bible speaks about judgment coming upon yourself 
when you don't discern the Lord's body, when you don't take serious what God has done for you. If you're not a Christian, that's not going to happen. Here's a better option. Give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. I mean, he, he died for you. He paid the price for your sins so you can be forgiven. So give your life to him. Partake with us in communion together. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you've showed us through your word what it means to be a true Christian, Lord, in our attitudes, Lord, in pleasing you because we love you, in our actions, Lord, not just saying but doing, being obedient to you, Lord, in our affection and our love for you and our love one for another. But, Lord, the greatest love that's been showed to us is the love that you gave us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for our sins. Lord, that love that he took all of our sin upon himself, not only the suffering, not only the beating with that cat of nine tails that tore open his back, not only the the whippings, the pulling of his beard off of his face, the crown of thorns placed on his head, the carrying of the cross on the back that was ripped open. But Lord, as he hung there on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of that guilt. And you at that one point, moment in time had to turn your faith from your son because you could not look at sin. He did all of that for us so that we can have this fellowship, this relationship with you. And Father, I pray right now if there's anyone here that has not received the forgiveness of their sin, they're not born again, Lord, that they would make that commitment this morning. While our eyes are bowed and our heads are closed, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, before we entered into communion, Do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? you want your sin forgiven? Do you want to be born again so that that God can start doing that work in your life, but He's got to get rid of that sin out of your life? He wants you to turn from that. If that's your desire this morning, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Anybody else here, you're this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. Raise it up so I can see it. For you that have lifted your hand, just repeat this prayer after me. This is a prayer of just asking Jesus to come into your heart. And and we as believers, we can pray along with him as well. Just repeat this prayer after me. Lord God, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. I want to follow you from this day forward. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I'm now born again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Welcome to the family of God. Again, Father, we thank you that we can come into this time of communion, Lord. We pray that you would... Uh, just open our hearts, Lord, to the things in our lives that we might need to work on as believers. Change of attitudes, change of, of actions, change of affections, Lord. Convict us, Lord. We might need to come to you for cleansing, for, for forgiveness this morning as well as believers. So, uh, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time as we examine our hearts. In Jesus' name.